Welcome to They Create Worlds, Episode 5, The Untold History of... Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we wanted to go into a topic that is near to dear to all the people who loved Nintendo and hated its arch nemesis, Sega. And really, the untold history of Sega. Exactly, because while Sega is a well-loved company by so many people... Interestingly enough, a lot of the history of the company, which on a corporate level has been very convoluted, has not really been told very accurately in what few history sources have attempted it so far. Originally, Alex was telling me this during the aforementioned Great Power Outage, where we just sat in my basement talking about video game history for, I do have no clue how many hours that was. You know, like all the cool kids do in a power outage. Kent kids were not the cool ones. So what struck me most during that original conversation, Alex, was the original name of where Sega came from. And if I recall correctly, you said that it's actually part of two separate names? Exactly. So the full name of Sega for most of its history as a video game company was Sega Enterprises Limited. And so you have Sega, which in itself is short for the term service games, which was one of the companies that came together to form the modern Sega. And then you had Rosen Enterprises, established by a fellow named David Rosen, and that's where they got the Enterprises part of it from. Now, that part of the story is actually pretty well-known and pretty well-recorded. I think anyone that is a Sega aficionado knows this whole thing about Sega games, or service games, and Rosen Enterprises. But that's actually not the whole story of how these companies came together, and that's where some of the history is a little more obscure. For those who may not know, what is the brief overview of how those two companies came together in order to form Sega? Sure. So that's a bit of a long story, so you'll have to bear with me here, and feel free to interrupt if there's, if I've been talking way too long. So Sega has its origins in Japan. It's a Japanese company, but it was not established by Japanese individuals. The Sega of today is very Japanese. All of the leading executives are Japanese, and they have been for quite some time. But in the beginning, both of those two companies, Service Games and Rosen Enterprises, were American. And to understand that, you have to go back to Japan at the very end of World War II. This was a country that was completely devastated by the war. All of its cities were bombed out, Many of its people were dead, its economy was in ruins, and it was a completely vanquished country. So at that time, Japanese industry had been virtually wiped out. Some of the big saibatsu still existed, of course, but there was no access to resources, there was no access to labor, there was no stable currency. So this was a country on the brink of collapse. This created an opportunity for Americans to come into the country and establish businesses in a way that wouldn't be possible have been possible 20 years sooner or 20 years later. Now, this didn't happen in very many fields. The United States 
injected a lot of aid into the Japanese economy once it became clear that we needed an ally in the Far East to stem the tide of communism in China and especially in Korea, where the Korean War was being fought at the beginning of the 1950s. But in the coin-op field, there was an opportunity here because originally this company, Service Games, was not serving the Japanese people who had absolutely no free time in the 1950s, the early 1950s. The work week was six and a half days a week because they were just desperately trying to recover. But because of the Korean War, there was a large American military presence in Japan at that time, as there still is to a degree today. And it was through these military bases that these entertainment companies first formed. All right. So Service Games was established by a very prominent American coin-op distributor named Irving Bromberg. In the U.S. arcade industry, you kind of have a three-tier system. You have the manufacturers that create the games, build the games, and sell the games to distributors, who are usually regional operators, though sometimes they may even be national operators if they're particularly large. And these distributors buy games in bulk from the manufacturers and then sell them on to operators, the people that actually maintain the games along a coin route. So this three-tiered system, four-tiered if you split operators and location owners into two separate parts, is kind of the lifeblood of the American industry. In this system, the distributor is a very powerful figure because he's the one that makes sure that the games get from the factory to the consumer on location. And Irving Bromborg was a Bally distributor on the East Coast uh, based in Brooklyn with branch offices in New York City and Boston and Washington, D.C., who decided to go transcontinental in 1934 and established a branch in Los Angeles as well. And all of these companies were part of the Irving Bromberg Company. That was the name of the distributor. And then he basically relocated entirely to the West Coast, sold off his East Coast holdings, and became based in Los Angeles. A few years after that, he moved even further west through his son, Martin Bromberg, who later changed his last name to Bromley. So he went by Marty Bromley. And Marty established a company in 1940 in Honolulu called Standard Games. Now, this is a good point to pause and highlight one of the first great myths about the founding of Sega. If you go to Wikipedia, at least as of right now, obviously Wikipedia can change, you will see that Sega, according to them, dates back to 1940 and this company, Standard Games. That mm -hmm. is not true. Standard Games was founded by the same people that established service games a few years later, Irving Bromberg and his son Marty. But this was a separate company that was actually wrapped up in 1945 at the end of World War II. And it was at that point that service games was founded in Honolulu as a coin-op distributor in the Hawaiian territory, not a state yet. And this is the company sort of that the service games empire stems from. But even then, that's not completely accurate. And that's where the history gets 
very complicated and corporate. So I'll, I'll try to do just a brief overview of what happened. And service games in Hawaii is what people traditionally think of as Sega. Well, they, they failed to realize that there was a change in company in 1945. So it's often dated to the founding of Standard Games in 1940, as opposed to service games in 1945 because they think that it's one in the same company when it really isn't. Now, that's that's very technical corporate stuff. I mean, it's not that important on, in the big picture, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, there were two separate companies there, and Standard Games, while it has almost all of the same principles as service games, it's a, one company succeeding another company. It's not a continuous chain all the way back to 1940. But it still holds all the intellectual property rights. Well, at this point, there are no intellectual property rights, because right now we're still talking about distributors. All this company was doing was taking product created by manufacturers in the United States, mostly in Chicago, companies like Bally and Williams and United, and buying that equipment and shipping it to Hawaii and then selling it to operators in Hawaii, who are often on U.S. military bases, because Hawaii then, as of now, has a very large military population, and so there's a big market for entertainment in open messes, officers' clubs, rec centers, etc. Okay. Now, this new service games operated in Hawaii for the next five or six years. And then in 1951, Congress passed an act colloquially known as the Johnson Act, after the sponsor, that severely limited the operation of coin-operated gambling devices in the United States. What it did is it forbade the transport of coin-operated gambling devices into states where they were illegal. So it didn't prohibit the manufacture of coin-operated gambling devices like slot machines, probably because Congress was afraid that that would be an overreach of its powers under the Commerce Clause to regulate interstate commerce. But by making the transport illegal, they basically made it so, yes, you can build these things, but you can't actually send them anywhere legally, which means effectively you can't build them. Outside of your own state. Even in your own state. If they're illegal in your own state, then you can't transport them there either. So they make the, Ill the interstate transfer illegal, so they would have to move operation to a state where it is legal to operate them, and then only pretty much sell to that state and hopefully only states around there who it's also legal to. Well, you don't have to move to the state to manufacture, but you can only sell the equipment to people in a state where it's legal. And at that time, that basically meant Nevada. The only state in the union. <laughs> For most of that time, there was a very brief period of time where Idaho legalized coin-operated gambling and... It went so poorly for the state, it was so harmful to the state because it was sucking in all sorts of gray market gaming in surrounding states that they finally backed off after a couple of years and made it illegal again. And in the state of Maryland, the state left it up to individual counties to decide whether gambling was legal or not. So at times there were a few individual counties in the state of Maryland where the devices were legal, but basically all the way until... Atlantic City legalized, or New Jersey legalized gambling in the late 1970s in order to do gambling in Atlantic City. Between the 50s and the 70s, it was essentially only Nevada where this stuff was legal. So 
in addition to making the transport illegal, because the United States government has direct control over United States territories, which Hawaii was at that time, not a state yet, they also specifically prohibited the operation and use of coin-operated games in the territories and, more importantly, on military bases, because, again, that's something that the United States Congress had direct control over, so that was within their constitutional power. Now, a large portion of service games business in Hawaii, probably the vast majority of it, was in slot machines on military bases. Hmm. So suddenly, they had all of the stock, and it was worthless. However, the Johnson Act did only apply to military bases within the United States and territories of the United States. It did not apply to military bases in foreign countries. And after World War II, we have a lot of military bases all over the world. Exactly. And so service games over the next decade or so made it its business to be the supplier of slot machines, jukeboxes, and to a lesser extent coin-operated amusements to U.S. military bases all over the world, which mostly meant East Asia and Western Europe, which is where the bulk of those American military forces were based. So at this point, they started founding subsidiaries. And they founded a company called Stuart and Lemaire in Japan. This was a partnership between two service games employees. Richard Stewart was a salesperson for service games. And Ray Lemaire was a mechanic, a repairman for service games. So you had a person with the marketing know-how, and you had a person with the technical know-how. And Which is always a good combination. Exactly. And they were sent to Japan together and told to establish a company that would import product and uh, place it on American military bases in the country. And this was kind of the beginning of the Japanese company service games that we think of. Again, the dates are a little bit off. Most history sources place this founding in 1951. I think they only do that because they assume it happened right after the Johnson Act was passed. Mm -hmm. In reality, it looks like it actually happened in 1952, according to the background facts in a court case that was levied against Marty Bromley in the 60s when he was accused of tax evasion. It looks like uh, it was actually established in early 1952, which is a small discrepancy, but it's not an important discrepancy. And this company started bringing in this equipment. And then what Irving Bromberg and Marty Bromley did is they founded a brand new service games company in Panama. And this became the new heart of what quickly became known by the United States government as the Service Games Complex, this interlocking group of corporate subsidiaries that traded back and forth with each other and spread these coin-operated amusements around the world. 
They presumably located in Panama because it had favorable tax conditions, you know, as a tax shelter or some such, though my knowledge of tax law is not nearly great enough to explain why Panama was an ideal location for that. And this company was established in 1953, and it became the parent company for all of these others. So Stewart and Lemaire, which by 1953 had been renamed Japan Service Games or Service Games Japan, I've seen it rendered both ways, was a subsidiary of Service Games Incorporated in Panama. Service Games in Hawaii, which the Brombergs held on to until they sold it in 1961, was a subsidiary of Service Games Incorporated in Panama. And over time, they added a few other companies. They created a service games company in South Korea under this umbrella. They created a company called Firm Westley in West Germany that was their entree into the European market because that's where the vast majority of American forces were stationed in Europe was in West Germany because of the Cold War. And now you had this web of corporations that existed all under the service games umbrella and so service games in panama would buy equipment from american manufacturers and then it would sell it on to its distributors around the world and then these distributors which in many locations especially in the far east also served as operators as well would place this equipment in military bases and that's kind of how this empire was born and they had a presence in japan and korea and the Philippines and Guam and West Germany later on. They also pushed into England and South Vietnam. And, you know, it was this real network. And what's really interesting about that is I know a little bit from where I work, what you do if you're doing an international thing, you really save a lot on duties and taxes if you can show that you have a company presence in these different countries so that the cost in order to transfer a product that's manufactured in the United States to Japan or Korea is significantly less than selling direct from the United States because of tariffs and taxes and so on and so forth. You can say, well, I'm just transferring this to my own internally held company that happens to be in Japan, and they will then finish up the product, however they do that, and hand it off to wherever they're depositing it. Exactly. And certainly avoiding import duties was a big part of what the company was all about, and they were constantly accused of doing so in less than savory means. Service Games developed a rather shady reputation with the United States government as the 1960s wore on. Rarely did the charges stick against the company, but there were always accusations of bribery, of tax fraud, of smuggling, of avoiding customs duties, all of these different charges with uh, the way this company did business. And they were at times banned from military bases in various countries. Uh, the Air Force even eventually banned service games from all of its installations in the entire world, though... Mm -hmm. Yeah, though they never lost their military contracts altogether, and they usually were able to avoid being found guilty on the most serious of the charges. They did occasionally have to pay fines and other penalties for more minor infractions like 
importing stuff uh, without paying the proper duties and that kind of thing. But, you know, they never got hit with the huge charges. They never stuck and they never had to serve jail time or anything like that. So how much of that they engaged in, how much of it was just government suspicion at this point, it's probably impossible to tell. But service games definitely didn't always have the best reputation. So the company started out entirely as a distributor. They were distributing Rockola jukeboxes. They were distributing coin-operated games from Bally and United and Williams. They were distributing slot machines by Mills Bellomatic, which before Bally introduced the revolutionary Money Honey electro-mechanical slot machine in the early 1960s, was the leading slot machine producer in the world, and bringing this stuff into these other markets. In the middle of the 1950s, they decided to take this entire operation one step further and go from just being a distributor to also being a manufacturer of its own product. So they did a couple of things here. They created another new subsidiary, because they were very fond of doing that, called Club Specialty Overseas, CSOI, Club Specialty Overseas Incorporated. This was also a Panamanian corporation, and it was a subsidiary of service games in Panama. And this new company became the clearinghouse. It kind of became the financial clearinghouse for everything that they were about to start doing. Then... They established a service games company in Nevada, and there's a very good reason they did that. At the time, the United States government had a Buy America program in place where a certain percentage of a product that was being purchased by the United States military had to be created within the United States in order for the government to buy it. It was a way to kind of protect American businesses from developing industries in other parts of the world. So they needed a final assembly point in the United States if they were going to manufacture product overseas that would then be allowed to be sold on to the United States military. So that became Service Games Nevada. Sort of comes full circle. They have, they're just trying to get everything out of the United States and into all these foreign countries and like, oh, we also want to do business in the United States. So we got to set up one of these umbrella companies in the United States. And why not Nevada, where they really like coin games? Exactly. Though, I mean, they were always doing business with United States military bases. That hasn't changed. What's come full circle is before they were buying other people's product and shipping it overseas. Now what they're going to do is make their own product overseas and then ship it back to the United States and other places. And so they established a factory in Japan as part of the service games operation. And they started creating their own slot machines. And they did this somewhat in partnership with Mills. There are a couple of different stories on how Sega first got its slot machine manufacturing capability. The more unlikely story has it that they found a Mills slot machine in a bombed out building and they took it apart and figured out how it worked and then started manufacturing their own. That probably doesn't hold any water because by 1956, Sega was already an official Mills distributor. So if they had wanted to rip off a Mills slot machine, all they had to do was take apart one of the slot machines that 
Mills gave them directly. So that story seems kind of fanciful. The more probable story that I've heard that I think is probably true is that they bought a tooling set from Mills. According to this story, Mills had three tooling sets, and they were using two of them, but the third one was just lying around and they had never really used it before. And so Sega purchased that tooling set from Mills, and then with Mills' blessing, started creating slot machines in Japan because Mills was really focused on the Vegas market, so I don't think Mills cared too much if someone else was handling overseas manufacturing like that. And I don't know if Mills also demanded some kind of royalty as part of this. I mean, there are no contracts that I know of surviving. So that history is still a little murky. But the important thing is in 1957, Sega starts creating its own slot machines based on Mills designs and starts shipping them all over the world to military bases, in addition to continuing its normal distributing operation as well. And then things get even a little more complicated. So I'm not sure if this is because the government was starting to investigate service games more and if service games was starting to get a bad name for itself or if they just did this for other reasons, but they basically stopped operating as service games in the 1960s. And this happened in a few different steps. This is the transition from service games to Sega. Sort of. That's part of the story. That's that's just not the entire story. So I, I should say first that from the beginning of manufacturing slot machines in 1957, they started using the Sega trademark on their slot machines. Service games is kind of a mouthful to put on a slot machine logo. So they shortened service games to Sega to put on their slot machines. Then on May 31st, 1960, service games Japan went away. Went away how? It was wrapped up. It was discontinued as a company. They just dissolved it. They dissolved the company. And so, again, this is a little bit of corporate trickery, corporate technicality, but almost every source that talks about service games says that service games, that Sega Japan, Service Games Japan, was founded in 1952, and the, or 1951 is what they usually say, even though it was really 1952, and say that that was the beginning of what we now know today as Sega. Well, again, that's not true because actually that company ceased to exist in 1960. And then what they did is they immediately created two successor companies that bought up all the assets of the original Service Games Japan. These companies both had Japanese names. The first of these companies was Nihon Goraku Busan, and this company was the distributor. So Nihon Goraku Busan took over the distribution aspect of the original service games of Japan. They took over the job of selling all this equipment and placing all of this equipment in United States military bases in the country. The second company, Nihon Kikai Saitso, took over the manufacturing operation. They took over the factory. They kept putting out the slot machines. And in 1960, they also started making their own jukeboxes as well. So they did all of the manufacturing for this worldwide service games operation. Then in 1963, service games in Panama was dissolved. And the subsidiary that I mentioned a while back, Club Specialty Overseas, became the new hub for this worldwide empire. Why did the master Panama over company get dissolved? 
you see, that's that's what I said before. I don't really know why they did this. And okay. un- unfortunately, all the principals are gone now, so there's no one left to ask. The only one still alive is Dick Stewart, and he's apparently in a coma, so he's only barely alive. My guess is that this happened for the reason I said, that Service Games was being investigated a lot and was starting to get kind of a bad rep. So when you start getting a bad rep, but you don't want to disappear as a company, you change the name. Yeah, I guess. They just started systematically going to every single Service Game and changing it into whatever else. Exactly. So Service Games Korea became Establishment Garland. Service Games Japan became these two new companies, Nihon Goraku Busan and Nihon Kikai Saitso. Service Games Panama went away, and Club Specialty Overseas became the new company there. Their German company, even though it didn't go by the name Service Games, it went by Firm Vestley. Uh, they changed its name, too. So Service Games went away, and these other companies came in its place. But the equipment that was being manufactured by Nihon Kikai Saitso and being distributed by Nihon Garaku Busan still had that Sega brand name on it. So that one legacy of the service game's name still continued. They still used that name Sega. Because it was probably a recognizable trademark. Exactly. At that point, it was. So what happened next is that Nihon Garaku Busan became a very powerful distributor in japan they had about half the jukebox market in the country they also had a lot of coin operated games on location in bowling alleys and shops department stores all those kinds of places where games were in japan they didn't really have dedicated arcades back then it was a little different but they had games all over the country they had jukeboxes all over the country because by this point they were expanding beyond military bases and into Japan itself because the Japanese economy had recovered enough that people actually had leisure time again and money to spend on leisure activities. At the same time, Sega was becoming a big name in jukeboxes and slot machines all around the world through the Nihon Kikai Saitso operation. They weren't really selling them in the United States where there were already very well-established American companies providing the slot machines and the jukeboxes for that market, but they were doing a brisk trade overseas. Especially in the war-torn areas. Exactly. And then you have Club Specialty Overseas in Panama serving as the nexus for all of this. So Club Specialty Overseas is the exclusive worldwide distributor for the Sega products in Japan. And then... They give all of these products to all of their subsidiaries in places like Germany and England and Korea and Japan. And so you have this very tangled web that it would take somebody with a very high degree of business training and business knowledge to fully understand. (laughs) Then in 1964, the two Japanese companies merge again. So Nihon Kikai Saitso goes away, essentially. And the surviving company in the merger is Nihon Goraku Busan. So we're back to one Sega company again in Japan. And then in 1965, you finally get the big merger between Nihon Goraku Busan and Rosen Enterprises. And that's when you get Sega Enterprises Limited, which is kind of, sort of, but not quite the company that still exists today. That's That company has essentially existed for the entire time since then, but there's been other corporate 
shenanigans here and there. It's sometimes it's a sub subsidiary of this, sometimes a subsidiary of that, and it gets very confusing again. But that is the parent company that we have come to associate with the Sega brand as far as gamers go. They're the ones who put out the Sega arcade game, the Genesis, the Dreamcast, so on and so forth. That's exactly correct. That's the Sega Enterprises Limited Company, which has at times been a subsidiary of other companies. So the other side of the equation here is Rosen Enterprises. And this is very important too. Sega Service Games was always much more focused on jukeboxes and slot machines. Mm -hmm. They did import arcade games into Japan, but they never manufactured them. And that really wasn't their primary focus. They were serving United States military bases all around the world. That was their primary focus. Rosen Enterprises was really the company where the coin-operated amusement legacy comes in. And once again, this was a Japanese company founded by an American citizen, a fellow named David Rosen, who had been in the United States Air Force from 1949 to 1952. Right smack in the middle of his service was the Korean War, of course. And he was stationed in Japan for a good part of his tour of duty, and he really fell in love with the country. He appreciated the culture. He ended up marrying a Japanese woman. Hmm. And he decided that he wanted to create a business there. So in 1951, while he was still in the military, he founded a business on the side. Now, most sources say that Rosen Enterprises was founded in 1954 and that this other company that he founded in 1951 was, was something else. I get the sense from the couple of interviews that have been done with David Rosen that he called the company Rosen Enterprises in 1951 as well and that it was one continuous thing, but it may not have been. It's very possible that this company in 51 was a separate company from the Rosen Enterprises of 1954. It's hard to tell without documentation. Exactly. And the original company was a portrait painting business. He would have portraits painted in the United States and then shipped into Japan where this kind of thing was kind of popular. It was an import-export kind of business. And he started it in Japan. Then he came back to the United States to go to college after his military service was over, and he was going to keep the business going from the United States, and the business didn't do well. It ended up collapsing. And that could be the company ended altogether. Again, I'm not clear whether at that point the company failed or just because the company was not doing well, he changed directions. But he decided to move back to Japan in about 1954 and continue the import-export business there. And so he was involved in the trade of small items, things like wallets and the like. He also did a small amount of manufacturing of very small things, little trinkets with corporate advertising on them and that kind of thing. Hmm. It was a very low-key business, import-export. When he really got big is he discovered that he could import photo booths from the United States and use those to take pictures for official state IDs. Because at this time, the photography in Japan was done entirely by hand and was still very slow and painstaking. There was not really a lot of modern technology available for some of this stuff just because Japan was still getting back on its feet. But having an official ID was very important because there was still rationing going on in Japan. And if you didn't have your government ID, you didn't get your rice ration. You didn't get your 
schooling, uh, go on to college or whatever. And so everybody needed to have an ID. And so there was this constant demand. And he realized, David Rosen realized, that he could import photo booths from the United States. And make them mint. Exactly. And originally he was hoping to use coin-operated automatic photo booths. And that was the original plan. Turns out that that didn't work because the quality of the camera and the quality of the film was not nearly high enough. A coin-operated photo booth is an amusement. It's something where you take a picture with your friends and you know laugh at all the funny faces you make together, and then you get tired of it after a while. So if that photo fades in two years... Who cares? Exactly. Your government ID needs to last a little longer than two years. So he ended up having to modify the photo booths. He put temperature controls in. He took out the automatic development process and had the film developed by people actually in the booth. I think the cameras were still automatic. It's just that the development was done then by a person in the booth. And this was a very successful business. He opened about 100 locations across Japan. He put them in movie theater lobbies. And he was able to do a great business with this because his photo booths were cheaper than traditional photography and the development process was a lot faster. It was a two-minute photo booth, which was a lot faster than what could be done by a traditional photography studio. Not to mention a whole lot more convenient. Exactly. So this became such a big business that it actually caused a minor international incident because local photographers started protesting in front of the American consulate that there was this big shot American coming in and driving the Japanese photography business out of business and how dare this imperialist American come in and destroy the livelihood of all of these people. So they had to come to a deal and basically Rosen was allowed to keep his photo mat operation going as long as he also franchised the operation and allowed local Japanese photographers to get a piece of the action essentially. Hmm. And uh, the business remained profitable after that but once the system was opened up there was really no keeping it proprietary anymore. You had a lot of competitors pop up. So it wasn't just franchisees of his popping up, but then there were other competitive photo booths popping up. So that was basically the end of the Rosen photo business. Mm -hmm. So he needed something else now to kind of keep his company going. And he hit on coin-operated games because at this time, and we're still talking, we're talking about 1956 or 1957 now, the Japanese economy is just starting to recover to the point that people have leisure time. And it's just now becoming possible to import leisure goods into Japan. So you see, you have to understand, Japan has always been a very closely regulated economy. And there's the Ministry of International Trade and Industry that kind of regulated what you could import into Japan and what you could export out of Japan. And you had to have licenses with METI in order to, to do anything. And... Until that point, it had been impossible to get a license to bring in anything entertainment-related because the country was very focused on reviving just the basic industry and the basic living standards of the country. And so this was considered a luxury item, and you couldn't get a license for it. Now Rosen was able to get a license to bring in equipment. So he got a license to bring in $100,000 worth of coin-operated equipment over the next year. And he was able to import a lot of games because instead of buying new equipment from the factories in Chicago, he went to American distributors that had accepted old games as trade-ins as part of the purchase price as a new game, just like you would do when you buy a car. Mm -hmm. 
And then they had nothing to do with these used games, so they basically just piled them in warehouses until their warehouses got full, and then they'd destroy all the games, and then they'd repeat the process. They'd pile them in a warehouse, destroy them, pile them, destroy them. And so now they had an outlet for these games, because here's David Rosen saying, I'll take all the games in your warehouse, and I'll give you cash money for it. And so they didn't ask for much money, because it was used product, but they were happy to have an outlet for this product. So he was able to acquire games cheaply, and he started placing them all over Japan. And he focused more on arcades. Now, at this time, it's really not still arcades as you and I think of it. It's still a space that's attached to a business. Mm -hmm. So an arcade in Japan at this point would be a little portion in a department store or a grocery store or a movie theater or a bowling alley. It wouldn't be a standalone place like in Aladdin's Castle or a Dave and Buster's or something. Sort of like how we mostly see arcades now. You usually see them in a movie theater. Exactly. Though this would be a little more substantial than what you see in, in most movie theaters in the U.S. I mean, you normally just see a small number of games, though there are some entertainment complexes where you will see a full arcade in a movie theater. But he was putting these games, particularly in movie theaters, because he again had those relationships with theaters going back to his Photorama days. And so he was bringing over a lot of coin-op equipment and having a lot of success with that. And he really wanted to stay focused on coin-op. And so when he merged his company into Nihon Goraku Busan to create uh, Sega Enterprises, he really focused the company on phasing out slot machines, phasing out equipment leasing and sales to military bases, and really focusing the company's attention on doing coin-operated games, importing them from the U.S. and taking advantage of that Sega factory that had been making all those jukeboxes and slot machines and having that factory start to turn out coin-operated amusements. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it may be a little dry corporate history, I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to see how the Sega was really this web of international distributors and operators and manufacturers and tax shelters all kind of mingled together into this kind of shadowy empire that most people aren't even really aware of today. And we don't really associate the Sega name as really existing before we saw them doing video games and various coin ops. That's true, because most of their products were for overseas markets. So in Japan, the Sega name goes back much farther because they probably saw Sega jukeboxes and the like. Slot machines were illegal in Japan at that time, so the Sega slot machines weren't being sold there. But other places like Korea or Western Europe or Vietnam before the communist takeover might remember Sega machines, but it, they weren't making Sega machines in the U.S., the first Sega products that came into the United States were coin-operated amusement products, and that was at the instigation of Dave Rosen, who really wanted to be in the amusement business rather than in the slot machine business. Another thought occurs to me. Since Sega and Nintendo both come out of Japan, at least at this point, where did the rivalry come from that we've come to associate as we grew up in the 80s and the 90s? Well, the rivalry really came from both of the companies entering the console market. There really wasn't much of a rivalry in earlier times. In fact, in the mid-1970s, Sega actually served as the North American distributor for Nintendo's arcade games. 
Nintendo actually made arcade games. Oh, yes. Nintendo. Nintendo's first foray into the video game business was in arcades, not in the home. Now, obviously, they existed long before. Before they were an arcade company, they were a toy company. Before they were a toy company, they were a playing card company. So they went through a lot of transformations, but they were very much in the arcades before they were in the home. So obviously, Nintendo and Sega were competitors in the arcade because they're selling into the same market, but that kind of rivalry wasn't as fierce as what went on in the home console market. So in home consoles, Nintendo entered the market first. They took part in the Japanese market's dedicated console craze. So Japan, back in those days, was essentially always about two to three years behind what was going on in the United States. So as we talked about in a previous episode, Pong became really big in the United States, dedicated console Pong, in 1975, 1976, 1977, and then that market collapsed. Mm-hmm. In Japan, Pong got really big in 1977 and then was really big in 1978 and 1979, and then the dedicated console market went away there. In the United States, the dedicated console market was replaced by the next big thing very briefly being the electronic handheld games. Obviously, programmable consoles were becoming starting to become big, as we discussed, too, but handhelds were a bigger market in 1978, 1979, 1980 was kind of the transition year. In Japan, handhelds exploded in 1980 and were really big in kind of 1981 and 1982. In the United States, programmable consoles got big in 1980, stayed big in 81, 82, 83, then there was a crash. In Japan, the programmable consoles started taking over in 1983 And then there really was no crash in Japan. They peaked in 1986 in Japan. After that, there was a decline, but there was never a crash. So two to three years behind what's going on in the United States. So Nintendo took part in the first Pong craze in Japan, produced a couple of consoles, four consoles, four or five consoles, in the 1977 to 1979 period. Then where they really made their mark in video games in Japan was in 1980 with Game & Watch. Mr. Game & Watch. Exactly. Game & Watch came to the United States, too, but Game & Watch was not as big, not even nearly as big in the United States. It was essentially a flop in the United States. But they were huge in Japan. Nintendo sold upwards of 30 million Game & Watch games over the course of its lifetime. They kept producing them in Japan all the way into the early 90s. I mean, they were huge. Wow. And... After the Game & Watch craze was really starting to die down as that handheld market was collapsing, at that point, Nintendo circled back around to video games with their programmable Famicom system in July 1983. Sega remained primarily an arcade company, and I would say in some ways they were always primarily an arcade company. Obviously, the Sega Genesis became very successful in parts of the world, including the United States and the United Kingdom, Obviously, people have very fond memories of the Dreamcast, less fond memories usually of the Saturn. And there was definitely a very big presence in the home. But I would say that they were really always first and foremost an arcade company. And what happened was there was an arcade crash in the United States in 1982, 1983, 1984. 
arcade video game crash. Mm -hmm. In Japan, there was also a serious downturn in the industry because the government started regulating arcades far more closely. They started enforcing curfews on arcade operation, rules on when minors could be in arcades, really cutting down on how arcades could operate. And so while game centers, as they call arcades in Japan, remained very popular, they weren't as big by 1983 as they had been in 1980. Because they curtailed the audience. Exactly. So Sega saw that the arcade market was not going to be as big in the coming years as it had been, both in the United States and in Japan. And so they decided that they should get into the console market too. And so that's what they did. And they had a leg up because since they created very sophisticated arcade hardware, they were usually able to adapt what they'd already done in the arcade into the home in terms of the hardware. So every system they did from their original SG-1000 in 1983 through to the Sega Master System, through the Sega Genesis, all was based on arcade hardware. Scaled down, obviously. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have as many features because otherwise it would be a you know $2,000 system instead of a $200 system. Right. But they, ha they kind of had that advantage. So they leveraged their arcade hardware expertise to enter the home market. And the Famicom and the SG-1000 launched on the very same day, July the 15th, 1983. Nintendo had a distinct advantage in the Japanese market because Nintendo had been operating in the toy industry for decades at that point. They had a very recognizable brand name, and Japanese go, ah, yes, I know Nintendo. I grew up with Nintendo. Well, and more importantly, they had existing distribution networks in retail. Also very important. Sega had to build their retail operation from scratch. Nintendo was able to hit the ground running with their retail operation. Their system was also cheaper than any system on the market, yet was also more powerful than many of the systems on the market, not all of them. And so this combination of power and price combined with an already established retail presence in Japan meant that Nintendo pretty much just buried all the competition. There were a few other systems. It wasn't just Nintendo and Sega. There are some other Japanese toy companies involved in the market that were never involved again after the Famicom took over. It basically wiped things out. And the thing about Japan is that Japan is a very group-centric country. So once you have a kind of clear winner in the market, once you have something that is already favored by 5 out of 10 or 6 out of 10 people, everybody's going to buy that. There has never been a real console war in Japan because it's a groupthink mentality. Nobody wants to be that one guy that went and bought the other system instead. So you don't have market shares where it's 55% to 45%. You have market shares where it's like 80% to 20% or 90% to 10% because everybody follows the leader in a group-centric culture like Japan. And that's why it's always been so hard for things like, say, the Xbox to break into the Japanese market. Well, and then that's a, that's a whole other issue mm -hmm. because Japan is also a very closed society to imports. 
Now, that isn't to say that no imports are ever successful in Japan, but in general, if Japan has a decent domestic product in a particular industry or category, the Japanese people are going to buy that product and they are going to ignore the foreign product. And so, you know, there was a big controversy about the big trade imbalance between Japan and the United States in the 1980s and early 1990s before the Japanese bubble economy collapsed, where American businesses were very unhappy and the American government was very unhappy because the balance of trade was so out of whack. And this led to all sorts of Japan bashing and some pretty racist stuff and some pretty ugly stuff in American history, really. But the important thing is that what would happen is the Japanese companies would flood the American market with all of these products that tended to be cheaper, that tended to undercut the American products in price, yet at the same time also happened to be higher quality products than what the Americans were putting out. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you had the Japanese just dominating the automobile industry in the United States in the 1980s, and they dominated the calculator business, and they dominated the semiconductor memory business. But at the same time, they're importing all this stuff to the U.S., so we're accepting their products. But then if we try to import something into Japan, nobody buys it. And so that's what creates the imbalance. So, I mean, the Xbox never stood a chance because the Japanese just weren't going to buy an American product. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of Sega... They're fine with Sega in terms of it being a, a Japanese product. The company is very much a Japanese company by this point. But once you have a clear winner in the marketplace... There's no hope. There's no hope, exactly. And so Sega never did well in Japan. Well, there was one brief period. The Saturn did well. That's kind of ironic. Right, because it did so horribly here. But with the exception of very briefly the Saturn, because the Sony PlayStation did end up bearing the Saturn in Japan, but with the exception of a very brief period when the Saturn was doing very well, Sega never did well with hardware in Japan ever. It was just a, a dead market. It was a Nintendo market, and then it was a Sony market. And Sega just never stood a chance. In the United States and Europe, things were very different. So... The root of the rivalry is really because of Nintendo's post-crash monopoly in the United States. Mm -hmm. The crash of the North American video game industry basically laid waste to all of the companies that were involved in the industry. There was still a market demand for video games. People were still interested in video games, but there was so much inventory that still had to be worked out of the market that everything that was being bought was being bought at bargain basement prices and nobody on the manufacturing side could make any money in video games anymore. If you have a game that takes X amount of money in materials components to assemble the game and manufacture the game, but then you can only sell it to retailers for half the price it takes to manufacture it because there's a glut of product and so retailers aren't going to buy anything at full price anymore, then you can't make money making video games. And that's why there was no industry anymore. So this left the industry wide open for Nintendo to come in, and Nintendo was very concerned about making sure that another crash didn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And so they controlled the market very strictly. They did all of the manufacturing themselves. Third-party companies could not manufacture their own cartridges. They would place an order with Nintendo, and Nintendo would then fill as much of that order as they decided the game was worth filling. <laughs> So that you wouldn't necessarily get your full order from Nintendo, but there was nothing you could do about it. Right. They would decide which games could be published in the United States. They would rate games internally using 
game-playing experts to decide how good games were, and they would rate the games and they would base the allotments accordingly, and they wouldn't allow any games to be released that had any serious bugs or defects in them. They also, you know, did some of that censorship stuff that people know, where excessive violence, excessive sex, depictions of religion, all had to be left out of the game. Those games would have to be modified if they had that stuff in it. And they limited publishers to releasing five games a year in the North American marketplace. And those games had to remain exclusive to the Nintendo Entertainment System for two years after their release. So if Konami decides to put their hit game Contra on the NES, they can't put their hit game Contra on a Sega system. At least not in the lifetime of that game. Exactly. Now they could sub-license to another company. That could work. There were actually some NES games that appeared on the Atari systems because the Japanese companies would then sub-license the rights to a different company, and then that company was allowed to put it out because they weren't bound by those restrictions. But the fact of the matter was, the Japanese companies were making all their money in Japan on the Famicom. They weren't going to put the effort into porting their games to Sega System anyway. <laughs> because one thing that's very important to remember is for the Japanese companies, they were always producing for the Japanese market. The Japanese market was more lucrative for these companies than the American market was. This was both because the American market was still recovering after the crash, so that the dollar volume took a while to recover, but it was also because the tie ratio in Japan was much bigger. So even though the United States had a bigger population and a bigger consumer base for games, American gamers tended to buy fewer games than Japanese gamers did. So that's the tie ratio, the average number of games bought by a console owner. The tie ratio was higher in Japan, so the Japanese companies were making all of their money in Japan. I mean, they made a lot of money in the United States, too, but they were always focused on the Japanese market first and treated the U.S. market as a secondary market. They always built their product for Japan. So they were never going to make anything for the Sega Master System anyway, because Sega Master System didn't sell anything in Japan. So you had these restrictive practices, though everyone I've ever talked to, and I've talked to executives at Acclaim and Activision and Konami and Capcom in the United States, all major players on the console market, all of them are uniform in saying that they felt Nintendo was very fair in their business dealings. In other words, they rated games to decide what the allotment of cartridges would be, but they rated games fairly. Good games got good ratings, bad games got bad ratings, and that was true whether they were companies made by Nintendo themselves or by a third party. They didn't rate their own games higher and a lot more cartridge production to their own games just because they were their own games. Nintendo treated everybody very fairly, but they it was very restrictive. Hmm. And they cornered the U.S. market. They took 70% of the market by the end of 1987. By 1990, they had like 90% of the market. Anyone who was anyone had a Nintendo. And Sega never really had a chance. What most people don't remember now is that Atari, the new Atari Corporation of Jack Trammell, actually had a larger percentage of the video game market than Sega did. Really? That's correct. It wasn't in any one system. They had multiple systems. They were still selling the 2600 as a low-end system. They had their 7800, which was the system that competed directly with Nintendo. And they also tried to make a computer console hybrid system called the XE game system that never really did very well. So 
they had multiple systems and they were doing most of their business on the low end of the market. It was that 2600 low end market that was really hopping. And it was people buying 7800s because they were a little cheaper than NESs. So the Sega Master System wasn't able to hold a candle to that. Exactly. They got maybe as high as 10% of the market at one point, but by the end of the period, they had only 5% of the market. Atari had about 15 to 20% of the market in the early part of the period. Then they lost a lot of that market share. They fell down to about 5% of the market too. And then Nintendo had about 90% of the market by the time the NES had run its course. So the rivalry really began during the Genesis period because Nintendo was seen by many in the industry. And at this point, when I'm talking about the industry, I'm not just talking about manufacturers. I'm talking about distributors and retailers as well. They were really seen as a company that had a monopoly that was very big and was very much able to throw its weight around and kind of set the rules in the industry. They forced companies to release only a certain amount of games. They forced retailers into having return policies. This is something that you may not think about today when everybody has a return policy, but back in the day, there was no such thing as a return policy at a toy store for something like a video game. Hmm. Most of the time, a company would refuse to accept a return, but then if they did accept a return, they would demand that Nintendo or whoever the other company was compensate them for the return so that the retailer wasn't actually out the money. Hmm. Nintendo forced all the major retailers to adopt returns policies, which I think is good for the consumer, quite frankly, because they basically said, you're going to adopt this return policy or you're not going to get games anymore. And you had to get games because I remember back in when Nintendo was big, you'd go into Toys R Us, you had this giant, almost plexiglassed in room that had all the Nintendo products in it. And you had to actually take cards or whatever your game was, bring it up to the counter <laughs> in order to pay. It That's was true. crazy. It's almost like it's its own little shrine unto itself compared to all the other games and uh, toys in anywhere. I mean, it pretty much on a pedestal, especially at that point. You went to pretty much any store. And really think back if you grew up in the 80s and the early 90s. Think back of when you as a kid went in there, the experience of going in and buying a Nintendo product and compare that to how it is now. It might be rose-tinted glasses from my point, but it really was different. It was unique. Look up a video on... uh, YouTube sometime of training videos they used to do for service tech for Nintendo. And you can see it's just really unique how it worked. It really was. And I should say, Nintendo never came to a company and said, do what we want or you don't get games anymore. Because that would have been a monopolistic practice in a legal sense. And then they could have been gone after by the United States government. But They would basically, you know, the trucks would not show up on time anymore. Or, I'm sorry, you ordered this much, but we were only able to get this much out of the warehouse. It would be very, very bad if you were to not accept our policies on these games. We would like you to have these shipments, but really, it is a very difficult thing unless you understand how things operate. 
Exactly. And in fact, the Target tried to balk Nintendo on adopting a returns policy. And they were the only major retailer that really did try to balk Nintendo on that. And finally, they had to back down and they had to implement a returns policy, too, because this was a period of time when Nintendo was like 70 or 80 percent of the toy market. It's not just that it was huge in video games. It was the toy industry for a period of time. If you were Toys R Us, you could not afford to not have Nintendo in your store because then nobody would come to your store. It was the toy industry, practically. Everyone wanted one. Exactly. And, you know, it was a big ticket item. So they're expensive. So it's not necessarily 80% of the market by volume of things sold, but it's 80% of the market in dollar value because uh, NES cartridge is so much more expensive than a G.I. Joe or a Ninja Turtle or a Barbie. And it's always that kind of like big star item that you put in the window to draw the kid in. And yeah, the kid will be in and he'll look at the big Nintendo display and then maybe mom and dad will get him to buy that G.I. Joe. But unless you have that big Nintendo thing to draw in little Johnny... You're not going to sell that G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. And so Nintendo was seen as this big Goliath, and everyone in the industry that wasn't Nintendo, third-party publishers, distributors, retailers, were really ready to have a competitor emerge that could balance the industry and force Nintendo to be less restrictive in its own policies because of the competition. And that's really why Sega was able to establish a toehold in the market with the Genesis in the 90s, and why this real rivalry developed, because you kind of had this David and Goliath situation. No one could openly support Sega in the beginning, because Nintendo was still all-powerful, and Nintendo could then throw its weight around and you know, there could be reprisals. But as Sega gained market share on the back of products like Sonic the Hedgehog, on the back of its own products, then these companies were able to break ranks with Nintendo and there was really nothing Nintendo could do about it. And so Nintendo had to ultimately become less restrictive. That's where the rivalry kind of happened. And obviously that's a big story all of its own, which, I mean, there was even a whole book written about that recently, Console Wars by Blake Harris. That's like 500 plus pages long. So that's that's a whole thing on its own, but it was definitely that console rivalry that really drove the vicious Nintendo-Sega hate, almost. I mean, I don't know if you really have hate in business, but it almost felt like hate. And then, of course, once Sega got out of the console market, then Nintendo and Sega were all buddy-buddy again, and you got things like you know Mario and Sonic at the Olympics, or Sonic the Hedgehog appearing in Smash Brothers. Now, back when they were rivals and Sega was getting its foot into retailers, I have this vague recollection that some stores seemed to primarily carry Nintendo and other stores would primarily carry Sega games. Well, sure, some retailers went to Sega sooner than others. The famous holdout was Walmart. For years, Walmart refused to carry Sega products because they wanted that Nintendo business so badly, and even then, Walmart was one of the largest retailers in the country. So that was a pretty big deal for Sega. And finally, they were able to wear down companies like Walmart just because 
they had gotten so big. And of course, they ultimately, with the Genesis, they overtook Nintendo in the market in 1993. Would you say Genesis was the pinnacle point for Sega, at least in the console business? Oh, without question. Without question, that was their most successful console on a worldwide basis. In Japan, it didn't do much for the reasons we already talked about. They sold over 3 million of them, but... But nothing compared to Nintendo. In continental Europe, they did okay, but not great. But in the United States and in the United Kingdom, they owned both of those markets, especially the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, Sega owned... Gosh, upwards of 60, 70% of the market, I think. Wow. Uh, in the United States, it was much closer. In the United States, it was kind of a 65, I don't even think it got up to a 65 split. It was mostly a 55-45 split in the U.S. market. And it was really only that one year, 1993, that they really overthrew Nintendo. After that, things started swinging back in Nintendo's favor again. But to go from 5% market share to 55% market share in three years against an established competitor is rather extraordinary. If you want to get a good idea of this rivalry that went on, you should do some YouTube searches for the Nintendo versus Sega campaigns. These were kind of really impressive. You had one of the most famous ones being Genesis does what Nintendo don't. And it just fascinating the almost like bitter 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 attacks that sega would go after nintendo anything that nintendo couldn't do right that sega could do they would trump that up and kind of ironic because overall the super nintendo was better than the genesis the genesis had a faster processor but that was pretty much it the Super Nintendo had a better sound and video capabilities, but had a much slower processor. That's why, if I recall correctly, Alex, Sonic was the game to really show off the processor because it could render all those scenes really quickly. But you had the Super Nintendo, and just think to things showing Mode 7 on that, and that's just the capabilities of the Super Nintendo. Exactly, and that dichotomy is very evident if you look at Super Mario World and Sonic the Hedgehog. Super Mario World was a much deeper game with all of the secret exits, alternate paths, bonus stages, etc. It was the more colorful game with all of these bright and happy kind of pastels going on. But it was a slower paced game and felt like a game more for younger children just in the aesthetic choices. I mean, it was a very challenging game, so certainly someone a little older could still appreciate that. But it felt more aesthetically like a children's game, and it was a slower-paced game, whereas Sonic, even though it wasn't as deep, it was fast and it was edgy. And that was kind of the dichotomy between Nintendo and Sega in that period. Nintendo felt a little slower and a little more childlike, even as it made incredible games. And... Sega was edgy and cool and fast, which really resonated with the American teenager in the 1990s that was also listening to grunge music and being involved in these other aspects of this kind of rebellious culture. Would it be fair to say that since it really appealed more to teenagers and teenagers could have 
part-time jobs, could that have driven more of the market share for Sega? Well, I think there's probably something to that. Uh, there's, it certainly appealed to teenagers in a way that the NES did. And the other effect there is once you capture the teenage crowd and once you have the teenagers thinking that you're cool, then eventually that passes along to the younger kids as well because they look up to their older siblings and they want to be cool like the old, like the big kids too. And so then their tastes start changing towards that edgier console as well, and it, it kind of feeds on itself that way. Okay. Well, we talked about pretty much the rise of Sega and how it really shined. So you would say that we would need to dedicate an entire different podcast to just the fall of Sega and the factors that led into that. Sure. I, that's a very complicated story, and I mean, we've certainly kind of skimmed over most aspects of Sega's history, too. There's a lot of corporate wranglings and whatnot we didn't get into but it's a fascinating story. I mean, I think the console stories tend to resonate more than any of the others. There have been more books written about them. There's been more ink spilled on them than anything else because they are so dramatic because you have a company like Nintendo that can dominate 90% of the market one generation and then fall to 55% the next and then even 33% the one after that. There's this constant churn of these console companies and heroes are born and live and die and companies rise and fall and very kind of dramatic stuff <laughs> a dramatic story every time mm -hmm. well what do we want to get into next time alex well we've been talking about a lot of issues in console gaming recently okay but my book project and this project and everything is really about much more than that because it's also about what's going on in the arcade and it's also about what's going on in the computer game industry. Okay. So why don't we switch focus a little bit and talk about one of the big, interesting early stories in computer game history, which is the founding and early years of Electronic Arts. A lot of that story has been told in the past, but it's mostly been told from the perspective of Trip Hawkins and there were other people there near the beginning of the company, one of which is Richard Melman, who was the original marketing guy. And he's someone that I've talked to. And talking to some of these people, a different version of this history emerges to a degree, only to a degree. It's not wildly divergent. But the story of Electronic Arts founding, I think, would definitely be a very interesting thing to cover. Sounds like a plan. And with that, we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.